So uh, some of you know, this is the beginning of football season. I'm a big college football fan. I grew up in the Southeast. I was born into it, not much of a choice. I've become an NFL fan as I've moved around the country, and I've become a football fan, uh, a soccer fan uh, from living internationally and being friends with so many of you. And so I want you to imagine it's the championship game of one of these sports I've just mentioned, and the coach uh, is preparing his pregame speech before the big game, and he's thought meticulously about what he wants to say in his final speech to his players before the game. He is urgently pled with them to be ready for what is coming next, and he's hoping as a result of the words that he says to his team that they'll be motivated to go out and follow his lead. And just after he delivers this speech, maybe you could think of Ted Lasso if you've seen this, uh, you know, you got Jamie Tart and uh, the other guys, and, and they're in the room, and they start fighting over who is the greatest player on the team. Uh, you st- it's, a, it's a coach's nightmare to deliver a message about team unity, to go out and to own the values of the team, to go out and really win the day. It's a coach's nightmare to see his two best players fighting over, two of his best players fighting over which one of them is the better player on the team. That's exactly what happens here in the scene of the Last Supper. Jesus is knowing this is the the big day. This is the the big moment. His coronation is happening. And so he's prepared a table for his disciples. And at the table, you have men, you have disciples fighting over which one of them is the greatest. Not only that, you have Judas at the table. You have one who who was truly going to betray Jesus at the table. But Jesus invites all of these disciples to enjoy this meal with him. You know, there's a whole cast of characters here at the Last Supper, and there's a cast of characters that join together every time we take the Lord's Supper, even here at Trinity Park. Uh, we have a cast, of, a cast of characters here. I mean, you're, I'm one of them, you're one of them. We all have backstories. We come from different, different nations, uh, different backgrounds. We have different stories We have different experiences. We have different sins that we've struggled with. Uh, We have different struggles that we engage in right now, as Joe prayed about some of those struggles. And we're, we're at the table. We're invited to the table to dine with Jesus. All kinds of people are at the table. There's a famous politician that was asked uh, not too long ago if he'd ever asked for forgiveness from God for his sins. And he responded, when I eat, when I drink, my little wine and have my little cracker, I guess that's a form of asking for forgiveness. And yet, he's invited to the table. He's invited to the table, even though he doesn't understand what he's doing. Who else is at the king's table? You find people from around the world, from the persecuted church that are there, people who are Christians who long ago learned that they can't use Jesus to get what they really want out of life, like a butler. Uh, But they actually serve Jesus, and the power struggle with Jesus has ended for them, and they have submitted themselves to Christ. Uh, Christians in West Africa, in China, in the Middle East, who when they take the Lord's Supper behind closed doors, in secret rooms, or in fields far away from other people, they take because they know what it means. The interesting thing about the Lord's table is that We are invited forward to take it. There's all kinds of people there, just like there was on that night 
of the Last Supper. So who gets to dine at the king's table in this portion of Luke 22? We learn three, th- three things about what's happening when we feast at the king's table. Three things we need to know, and it's great we get to take the Lord's Supper today. So this is like uh, a 35-minute preamble for what it means to take the Lord's Supper. So um, when we're feasting at the king's table, the first thing is Jesus is the meal. Jesus is the meal. And there are three different aspects of how Jesus brings this out as he's presenting what's happening at this Last Supper. First of all, Jesus is the Passover lamb. If you go back to verse 7, actually four times Jesus mentions that this is the weekend of the Passover. So Jesus meticulously, intentionally timed his death and this meal to coincide with the Passover meal. Now, why would he do that? What is so important, and what is the connection between the Passover and the Lord's Supper? Well, if you go back to Exodus 12, when the people of God first took this meal together, the first thing they did is they found a lamb, and they killed it, and they killed it. And as a family, they gathered together, and the first thing they did with the blood of this lamb, they did two things. The first thing they did is they took the blood of this lamb, and they put it over the doorposts of their houses, so that when the angel of death came by, it would pass over or pass by those people, so that the blood of the lamb effectively would mean that the curses of God do not fall on them, but it falls on the lamb instead. The blood of the lamb means that the curses of God pass over the people of God because the lamb took the curse. And so we remember back the Passover and the significance of it. The second thing they did with the lamb is they ate the lamb. They ate the lamb together as a family. They consumed the sacrifice. And as they took in the sacrifice, it actually gave them the sustenance that they needed for the journey ahead as they followed the Lord into or toward the Red Sea and toward the promised land. And Jesus is the meal. As we take Jesus in by faith in the Lord's Supper, or when we take him in by faith, whether we're taking the Lord's Supper at that moment or not, when we take Jesus by faith, he is spiritual sustenance for our souls. So Jesus planned this meal to coincide with the Passover because he is the final Passover Lamb. He's the fulfillment of the Passover. Jesus is the meal at the table of grace. Second of all, Jesus is the broken bread. Jesus says, this is my body given for you or broken for you. So the broken body of the Lord Jesus symbolized in the bread, it shows that this is the cross of Christ. This is his body broken. It needs to be, the cross of Christ needs to be at the very center of, of the church from this point forward, Jesus says. The bread of life, bread is something that we depend on. It is central to life in the ancient Near East. It is central to life in America. It's central to life. It's like the rice of Asia, the bread of of the world. You need it to live. Everyone depends on it. And Jesus says, my body broken for you on the cross, this is life for you. This is the central piece of everything that you need. And like bread, in order for it to benefit you, I mean, Jesus could have chosen something else, I suppose, if he wanted to, but he didn't. He chose bread because in order for it to help you, you have to actually take it in. You have to actually receive it into your life in order for it to be helpful for you. It's not a metaphor that is helpful if it remains outside of you. It's not supposed to inspire you 
by merely looking at it. It's supposed to change you as you consume it and take it in by faith. So Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. I am paying the penalty for your sin on your behalf, in your place, as my body is broken for you. Jesus is the meal at the table of grace. The third aspect that we find here that Jesus brings out to teach us about the Lord's Supper is, he says, this Jesus, he says, I am the cup of the new covenant. I am the cup, my blood is the cup of the new covenant. Every time I give the words of institution, I say, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you for the remissions of sins. Every time you drink of it, you proclaim my gospel until I come again. So to appreciate the idea of a new covenant, you first need to understand the nature of the old covenant. So in the old covenant, back in Exodus, you can go not to chapter 12, but to chapter 24, you can find a time where the old covenant is being reconfirmed between God and the people. And it's helpful to imagine yourself back in this congregation, in this church, and what it would have been like to participate in this covenant renewal ceremony. Well, the first thing you find here in this covenant renewal ceremony is the blood of many animals were put into large basins. I've been reading through the Old Testament in two years. I'm a little behind on my two-year plan. It's a little ambitious for me, apparently, to, to read it even in two years. But anyway, as I'm reading through the Old Testament, I'm recognizing the amount of blood that is shed in the Old Testament. I mean, there are sections. It is, it, is it is a bloody covenant. Uh, the covenant, the Old Covenant, is confirmed again and again with blood shed. In this case, the blood of animals, they were put into large basins. After the blood was collected, half of the blood was poured onto the altar to signify that the lamb was taking on the sins of the people, was being crushed for it. And then the other half of the blood, get this, was sprinkled onto the people. So if you're there in church in the Old Covenant, in this covenant renewal ceremony, Blood is sprinkled on you, all over you, to symbolize that individually and collectively, the lamb has taken your place, that you have been covered in the blood of the lamb. Now, this lamb, that that old covenant lamb, that's not going to have a lasting effect for you. You need the real lamb. You need the ultimate lamb to come and shed his blood for you. But imagine in that day, you would have had blood covering you because a covenant in, the, in that day was a bloody business because there had to be a life-for-life life exchange. And that's how it was done in the old covenant. Well, now, thanks be to God in the new covenant, we don't have to get covered in blood in order to reaffirm the covenant. Because there's a new covenant, why do we not need blood now? It's because the blood has been shed. Jesus' blood has been, to- has been fully shed once and for all, it's the final sacrifice. It's the ultimate sacrifice. There's no more need for bloodshed. There are some people who don't understand this in the Bible, for real, and are raising a pure lamb and cattle in areas of America because they believe they still need to sacrifice animals to, to pay for their sins. This is true. We don't need to do that. If Jesus hadn't died on the cross, they would be right. We would need bloodshed. More blood. Now we don't need it. We just need Jesus. And so we can put our hope in him. But you need to understand the importance of this blood of the new covenant 
that was poured out for the remission of sins. Without that blood being poured out, then we would still be covered in blood in order to reiterate the covenant. That little wine or little juice has no power in and of itself if it is not matched with, if it is not symbolic of, if it is not a sign and seal of the blood of the lamb who was slain. So Jesus is the meal. I don't mean transubstantiation. This doesn't become the flesh and the blood of Jesus. But truly, really, when we take these, this, these elements by faith, we, we really are sustained by faith by Jesus Christ. It's a real spiritual presence that comes when we take Christ by faith in the Lord's Supper. So the king's table is a table of grace. It's a picture of Passover and the, the, the body broken and the blood shed are all symbols that need to be on our minds, Jesus says, in order to understand the significance. So that's the first thing. Jesus is the meal. The second aspect here this morning is when dining at the king's table or feasting there, imitators eat with true believers. Imitators eat with true believers. So in the middle of this history reshaping event, Jesus is sharing a final meal with 12 men, and one of those men is Judas Iscariot. So Judas is probably, I don't think there's a name you can say in the English language that has a more negative connotation than Judas. Um, I have heard of boys named Cain or Saul, but I've never met a Judas. I've never met one. The name itself just carries this, uh, this reprehensible nature to it. But I want to ask you something that's going to require some intellectual flexibility from you. Okay, there was a time before Judas betrayed Jesus, and that time is at this meal. And so when Jesus is presenting, one of you, there's some, one of you is at the table with me, and he is going to betray me. It's not like all the disciples together collectively looked at Judas and said, we know it's you. They didn't know. They didn't know that Judas was an imposter. They had no idea. And they'd been walking with him for three years. The only people at the table that knew it was Judas was Judas and Jesus. It is very possible to be able to be an imposter who has come to the king's table many times, perhaps, and doesn't understand the significance of what is happening in this meal. It's possible to have an external performance of religion and faith to do all the things that other people are doing in order to fit in in the church, to not actually know the Lord of the church. It's possible to externally want to conform so that uh, you f- maybe you feel better, maybe Jesus is kind of like a therapist for you, or maybe you're really hoping he's more like a butler that will give you maybe 30 pieces of silver one day. I don't know, but there's something that you want from Jesus, but it's not him. You want something else, and there's just something about this story that, that just reckons with our souls that, that they don't look all in unison at Jesus. They didn't, at Judas, they didn't know that it was him. And I think it's, it's cause for us to pause and to ask ourselves the question, am I really inter- is my internal faith matching my external expression of that faith? 
going back to a couple sermons ago, the, the London tube, uh, the, the, uh, the motto, mind the gap. Is that gap in my life, that integrity gap, is there really no true faith in me? Am I just going through the motions? I mean, we all have sin. We all struggle. We all fall far short of the glory of God. It is extremely biblical. So that's not what I'm saying. But are you saying to God that I am a sinner? I really do need your grace. Is that going on in your heart? Or um, perhaps in coming forward, you're, you're trying to do something good so that God will one day love you because you're expressing some kind of religious uh, affiliation or something. But, but Jesus is the meal. You can't come forward. You shouldn't take this meal. Although, although Jesus allows Judas to take this meal, and there are people who are imposters all over the world taking this meal, Jesus does allow it. But we have to recognize that even though Judas was allowed to come to that table that day, on this, the day when this meal becomes the great meal, and when it's translated into heaven, and we actually eat at the wedding supper of the Lamb, only true believers will be present on that day. You may be able to come forward on this day, and, and frankly, I have no idea. I don't know. That's not my job to know who knows the Lord truly and who doesn't. That's Jesus' job. My job is to proclaim the gospel to you as clearly as I can and to call you to respond to him. But it's, it really is between you and the Lord whether or not you have received his grace by faith. If you have, then you will be in that final wedding supper of the Lamb. You will be in that ultimate uh, supper that we're going to have in heaven that this is a foreshadowing of, a mere foretaste of. But I Im implore you on this day, it would be far better, as I say every time I, I do this meal, as, as, if I can remember, I implore you, it's so much more worthwhile, I mean, it is infinitely more worthwhile to take Jesus himself, to truly take Christ himself by faith than to just come forward and keep on taking your little cracker and your little wine, not knowing what it's significant for. It's significant because he has paid the penalty for your sins. When you take this meal, it doesn't mean that Jesus forgives your sins. Someone asked that to me recently. Uh, when I come forward and take the Lord's Supper, does, am, are my sins being forgiven when I take the Lord's Supper? It's actually a great question. The answer is no. Your sins are already forgiven. Your sins are forgiven long before you take this meal. You come and take this meal because your sins are already forgiven. You can take this meal and experience the forgiveness that God has already offered you in Jesus Christ. But at this table, all over the world, you have imposters dining with true believers. The third element here that, that comes out to us, when dining at the king's table or feasting there, the power struggle must end. The power struggle, it must end. Jesus says he has eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal together with the disciples. Why? In all the theology in the first section, if you kind of got lost there or something, let me just dial it down for you a little bit. Let me break it down. Why did Jesus eagerly desire to eat this meal? Because he loves you and because he is about to die on the cross to express that to the world. And this meal symbolizes that, that very thing. Jesus came because he loves us and he's about to die on the cross 
as an expression of that love to pay for the sins of all who would call on his name for all of history, for all of time. And he loves the disciples. I've eagerly desired to eat this meal with you, one, because I'm about to pay for your sins, two, because at this meal I'm going to demonstrate something to you. I'm going to give you a final master class. And Jesus is just hoping that in this, this moment that they will finally get it. They'll finally get the nature of the kingdom of God, that the power struggles have to come to an end. I started this sermon by comparing the disciples to a coach who's giving his pregame, uh, this moment to a coach in the pregame speech, and two guys step up and they start fighting over which one is the greatest, and it's almost comical. I mean, we've heard this story so many times. It's almost comical that in this moment, this is what's happening. Between two of the more prominent disciples, they're fighting over which one is the greatest. They still don't get it. They don't get it. And so Jesus tells them for this final time before he goes to the cross to finally show them in real living history, right in front of their faces, that he has come, the greatest one, has disrobed himself of all of his heavenly majesty, and he has come as a man. He has come to go to the lowest place to become the greatest servant to suffer and die for our sins. Jesus is saying, not only am I going to serve you by serving you in this meal, I'm the one serving you at this, at this table, and you're the ones being served. I'm about to serve you in the greatest way that you can ever imagine by literally giving my life for you. He says, I am the greatest one, but I have come as a one who serves. Therefore, everyone who comes after me has to take up their cross and follow me. This is the way of Jesus. He's saying this is true greatness in the kingdom of God. Greatness in the kingdom of God equates to the one who serves the most, who goes to the lowest point. So Jesus is the king because he goes to the lowest place. It's completely flipped upside down from what we normally expect of leaders today. But Jesus is saying, my friends, what I'm about to do for you means your power struggles with one another and with me need to come to an end. You need to renounce yourselves as the center of your life. You need to give up yourself to to take up your cross and follow after me. Now, we today, it's too obvious to actually fight in church about who's the greatest. Like, uh, I've never actually seen that happen where two people actually got in a fight in front of me uh, in a worship service about which one of them is greater uh, in the kingdom of God. It's just too, it's too obvious. I think we've heard this story enough, or maybe our, our, just our EQ is a little higher than these guys, and we just don't get into those kind of, um, those kind of matches with each other. But actually still, uh, we have our power struggles with Jesus, and we still want to be the greatest. Let me show you a couple of examples why. Uh, as I get into this, I've been tremendously helped by the book the J-Curve by Paul Miller. Uh, many of the leaders in our church are reading this together right now. Uh, it's, a, it's a great book, but uh, it's been very convicting. So don't read it if you don't want to be convicted. Uh, but if you want to be convicted about how much you, meet, you need Jesus, it's a great place to start. Um, so the other night, um, I was at one of my son's soccer games. And um, I am a very competitive person. And um, our team was just getting shellacked by another team. And I found myself getting more and more frustrated. I was frustrated with the coach. I was frustrated with the players. I was frustrated with the officials. And I was not in a good place. And we were just kept getting scored on and scored on and scored on. And I was really not, I was not doing well. Uh, 
and uh, actually yelled at the game a couple of times. And it was embarrassing. I mean, I had a dad who did this growing up. It embarrassed me uh, when my dad did that. And it was embarrassing to do that. And afterwards, I started reflecting on what is that? What is that in me that in that moment uh, I would do that? And Paul Miller actually tells a similar story. What, what happens in those moments is that my identity is not in Christ. It is in soccer. It is in soccer. It is in my son having a successful season and their team not being terrible uh, to watch. You know, it's, I, I want to see them succeed. But my identity was not in Christ in that moment. It was in soccer. Uh, if, you, if you're like, well, I don't really struggle with that at sporting matches, here's another uh, example that I could give for you. Maybe you're at work and you've contributed to a project. I was just talking to someone the other day. This happened to them. You've contributed to a project and you were overlooked by the boss. Uh, you are not hearing any positive feedback. You don't even know. You, in fact, you don't think he recognizes and that, he, that you contributed. In fact, it seems like other people are taking credit for some of the work that you did. So what do you do in a situation like that? Well, you can gossip and slander about these people behind their back. You can do something super awkward to get noticed by the boss. You can wallow in depression and misery. Uh, you can plot, you know, get on open door or or whatever, to try to see if you can find a new job. But the, real, the reality of that is, is that you, your identity is in work and not in Christ. It is completely throwing you off in that situation. Here's another one. Perhaps it, the same similar thing happens in a church. In church, you have gifts and you have abilities and you, you really want to be used by God, but you're consistently overlooked by the pastor, by the elders, by other people, and you're not given the responsibilities that you feel like you rightfully deserve or that you, you really, really want desperately. And so you end up getting all messed up in your heart. Uh, you have a hard time seeing how your leaders are any good. And, and you end up really wanting to uh, not do good, but maybe even, uh, maybe even say things behind their back that are hurtful. Or you start comparing yourself to everybody in the church instead of being able to enjoy the gospel these are the ways that we have power struggles in our heart. We want to be great still. I want to be great in certain ways, and it comes out weirdly in my life. But when it does, I need to take ownership of it. You know, a sign of an idol uh, is when it becomes an over-desire in your life. You know, wanting my son to have a successful soccer season, there's nothing wrong with that. Wanting to be noticed by your boss for work you did, there's nothing wrong with that. Wanting to be put in a place where your gifts are used in the church, there's nothing wrong with that. But when it becomes an over-desire, it becomes something that you feel like you really can't live without. It's something that you need in order to be whole. And that's when it becomes a real problem. That's when it becomes an idol in your life. And you can know it's an idol in your life going beyond that to where your view of God is actually wrapped up in whether or not this goes well or poorly for you. In fact, it could become to the point where, you know, Josh's soccer team does well and I'm like, Man, I mean, God really loves me. He's really heard my prayers, you know. He really does care about me. If they keep on doing prayers, it's like, I don't know if God really cares about me or not. At work, you know, the boss actually notices you're like, man, you know, God is good. Thankfully, God does love me. Someone notices you at church. Thankfully, God does love me. But if, they don't, if it doesn't happen, then you actually begin to believe that God doesn't care about you as much as he actually does. That's a sure sign that our identity has gotten wrapped up in ourselves wanting to be great 
and, and not necessarily being most concerned about the greatness of God in our lives. But the amazing thing about it is we're just like the disciples. No need to deny it. It comes out in various ways in our lives. We have these power struggles and these deep, frustrating things we go through in our lives. But listen to what Jesus says to us who want to be great in parenting, great at work, great at church, great in all these areas of our lives. Some of the most encouraging words in the Bible, the final three verses of our passage. Jesus says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred on me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. My first response to this at the end, I mean, these guys have just gotten in a public fight about who's greater. Judas is at the table. He's not included here and who gets to judge in the the final 12. But Jesus, in this moment, he doesn't have a pity party and say, oh, man, my my pregame speech didn't work. I must not be a very good leader. Um, he, He doesn't do any of that. He actually gently turns them back to the nature of the kingdom, and then he gently turns it back and he says, you know what, guys? In the midst of this moment, and that's what he says to us as well, in the midst of this moment, you are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom. And you're like, what? How? How us? How can we be the ones who get your kingdom? Who get You confer on us a kingdom. How is this possible? We're a motley crew. We're a collection of characters, all kinds of stories. How is it possible? It's because it's not on your performance. You don't, you don't get to come to this table. You don't get in the kingdom because you did something well. Man, thank the Lord. You don't get in by performance. You get in by grace. You get in through the performance of Christ. I love one of the songs we sung earlier. I love when a song has really good theology. Come behold the the wondrous mystery. The second verse is all about the obedience of Christ. He's the perfect son. He was perfect. He never did that. He never got involved in these, these power struggles. He just submitted to his father and he obeyed and he did it perfectly. And he's, that's why he's the king. That's why he's the Lord. And that's why he, and only he, because he did it perfectly, can die on the cross for our sins. And that's why he, and only he, can dispense out grace for these 11 who are just sometimes so comical. And it's just like us and our, our lack of following Jesus and our, and our moments when we really get it wrong. He confers on us a kingdom. Amazing. You know, I'll close with a story. I was able to go uh, out west this summer with my family. I had an amazing time. I was hiking with, again, some Josh stories in this, this sermon. Uh, I probably owe him some money after this or something like that. He used his name so many times. But, um, but anyway, Josh and I got to travel down to um, Grand Teton National Park, and we took this hike that was just spectacular. You get to the top, and there's Delta Lake, Amphitheater Lake, and Surprise Lake, and it is just one of the most beautiful places on earth. These three lakes uh, kind of nestle down the side of Grand Teton, so at each lake you're actually Grand Teton, the peak is just right there, and you're just below it, and it is spectacular. And I had this thought in my mind as I was standing there. I was praying, and I I just thought, man, God, this is a place for you. This is such a beautiful place. This is a place 
that is fit for a king. Surely, Jesus, if you were to walk the earth, I actually thought this in my mind, this is where you'd want to be. This is it. And it's like the Holy Spirit just told me, no. This is not where I would want to be. Not that there's anything wrong with this place. It's fine. But I already came. I already came to earth. And I didn't try to get to the highest places, the most beautiful places. I went to the lowest places. I went to the dirtiest places. I spent time with lots of people. I didn't try to get away from the fray very often. I did some, but I went into the fray. I sought out the lowest place. I sought out the prostitute, the sinner, the tax collector, the Pharisee who didn't understand me. I sought out the rich young ruler I sought out people like Zacchaeus, people whose money had made them numb to their need, even though they needed me so much. I came, and I went, and that's where I went. I went to the lowest place, and he just gently rebuked me, and he was like, you still have so much to learn about who I am and what I'm like. That's Jesus. He blows our categories completely. Why he, a king who is worthy of heavenly glory, He wouldn't come to a place like Grand Teton. Maybe it's okay to travel there. But but really where he went is he went to the streets. He went to the poor. He went to the broken. He went to the needy. He went there for you and for me. He came and he gave up everything. He became the Passover meal. He became the bread. He became the blood. Jesus is the meal. He did it. He spent time with all kinds of people even imposters, and even if you find yourself in that place today where you're like, oh my goodness, I don't think I've ever really believed this, it's your day. You should do it. Believe in Jesus. This grace is real. You don't have to keep on performing and driving yourself crazy. You can actually stop and receive grace and mercy in your time of need. This table is for those who know they need grace. It's for those who believe that Jesus is the grace of God, come for us. Jesus is the meal. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you keep on defying our categories for what it means to be a king. You You blow us away with your love for us. Though we are so prone to putting our identity in other places, you still pursue and you love. And somehow in the midst of that process of us seeing your love over and over again for us, poured out for us on the cross, pursuing us in our over-desires, in our misunderstandings of your kingdom, it melts our hearts, and we find ourselves wanting to know you even more and wanting to be even more true, even more true in our hearts to this gospel that we believe. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel that is not just an idea, that it's a person. You are the gospel, Lord Jesus. You poured out yourself for us on the cross for the remission of sin. Lord, I pray for us today as we take the Lord's Supper that you would enable us in this moment to connect our hearts and our minds to you by faith that upon receiving it, we would be reminded and refreshed and sustained for the journey ahead that we have. Lord, we thank you for the gospel in Jesus' name.